So, I'm Darren Briskman. With me is Amy Shea. We're both from AWS and are going to talk about architecture patterns for multi-region active-active applications. I hope that's what you came here to find out about. All right. And then also joining us uh, is Christopher Lane from Chick-fil-A. Because you might think, why do I need active-active global architecture for chicken? You'll find out. Also in this presentation will be cats and cows. So we'll find out how useful those things are. But as we take a look at our agenda and what we're going to talk about today, I'm going to start by giving you the secret to multi-region active-active architecture. You ready? Here it is. Don't do it. It's too much work. It's complex. You've got to test it and take care of it and constantly monitor it and make sure everything is synced and make sure that everything always works. And, and it, it's just so, so much. Oh God. And it's, it, have I convinced anybody not to do this? Okay, I, I can't tell because the lights are too bright. So, so if I convince you not to do it, you can leave. For everyone else, we'll talk about it for the rest of the session. Um, because it is challenging. It is a lot of work. People use it when they shouldn't. My bad analogy is it's like chemotherapy, right? Chemotherapy is very powerful and it's the right treatment. Don't use it when you have a cold. I was recently working with one of our enterprise customers, which for obvious reasons I won't name, uh, who set up active-active architecture, started putting critical applications onto it, and about nine months later say, wow, this is really expensive and really hard to do. Um, do we really need this for all of our applications? And we did a review, and one of the applications that was active-active with sub-second failover was the menu on the employee cafe for that day. Okay, I like lunch as much as the next person, maybe more than some people, but that really doesn't need that level of availability. So we're going to look through multi-region architectures, what you can do with multi-region that's not active-active, but then we'll look deeply at the business continuity, the patterns that make active-active work, or not work, the tools that we have to make this happen. And then finally, Chick-fil-A is an example of how to do this. So let's jump in. So as my grandmother would say, so you want a multi-region architecture? She, she was from Brooklyn. So first of all, what's a region, right? So if you're not familiar with this, at AWS, a region is a place in the world with resources. We currently have 19 of those with five more announced. Andy Jassy earlier this year, our CEO, said that eventually every significant country will have a region. He carefully did not say which countries are insignificant, so we'll, we'll have to figure that out. Uh, in each region, I've got availability zones, at least two, and sometimes as many as six. And each availability zone is one or more data centers. And each availability zone has isolated power and isolated network. So if that availability zone goes down, the, the other availability zones in that region are over-provisioned to have enough capacity to cover what went down. So you can get as high as, as four nines or better. So 99.99% uptime without ever going cross-region. And a lot of our key services are automatically across availability zones. When you use S3, when you use Aurora, when you use DynamoDB, when you, uh, you use Kinesis, I, I, I'm not going to name them all, including a whole bunch of new ones that we talked about this morning, they're already across multiple AZs. So if you lose an AZ, it's no big deal. So you might not need multi-region at all if all you're looking for is high availability. And 
I'm going to, and just to make sure we're clear, when we talk about multi-region active-active, we're talking about two full stacks in different regions. So there's a number of reasons not to do that. One is replication lag, right? We're limited to the speed of light through a glass cable, which, by the way, is approximately 100 kilometers per millisecond. So if I am, for example, going from Virginia to Oregon, which is about 3,000 kilometers, I'm 30 milliseconds out of date, best case. Is that survivable? Depends on your application. The bigger issue, if you don't test, it won't work. You'll hear me say that a few times today, because I've seen this too many times, and people set it up, and nine months later something goes wrong, and they didn't test it in the meantime, and it didn't work. You've got to do testing and constant testing to make active-active work. You need a dedicated team of people whose whole job it is is to keep that, in, that application tested and ready. Seriously, it's a full-time job. If you don't do that, you shouldn't be doing active-active because what you've added is complexity. If what we're trying to do is avoid downtime, what causes downtime? We all think about the smoking hole in the ground, right? That happens. It doesn't happen much. And I, I live in Oregon. I love watching the sun come up over the beautiful snow-capped volcanoes, snow-capped active volcanoes. One day, one of those volcanoes will impact our service availability in the Oregon region. So we all think about those. But what causes almost all outages? Human error. What causes human error? Really? Complexity. So when I add to complexity, I'm adding to my risk. And if I'm not ready to do the cost, not just dollar cost, but human cost, time cost, attention cost, to manage that complexity, I just made myself more risky, not less, by going multi-region. Okay, so why actually do multi-region? So there's three and a half reasons that I hear that make sense. So reason number one, and the most common reason, is I can have no downtime. Four nines isn't enough, maybe five nines isn't enough. I need to have a world that I've got applications running, in this case, say, in San Francisco, and users in San Francisco that are hitting US West, users in New York that are hitting, say, Virginia. And if something goes wrong with one of those services, I need, in sub-second time, for that to be detected, knocked offline, rerouted, so that no end user ever knows that this went wrong. OK, there are applications that need that. They're not the menu in the employee cafe. But there are some applications that need that level of can never go down. That's the most common reason people do active-active. Second reason is I've got a geographically distributed base, and I want to avoid the latency that comes from that. Right? So my San Francisco users, I want to have them go to Oregon. And my New York users, I want to have them go to Virginia. My London users, I want them to go to Dublin or, 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 or Britain. And my China users, or Shanghai users, I want them to go to Ningxia or one of these others. Um, because, you know, I've got latency time, right? You know, Virginia to Oregon is going to be 30 milliseconds. London to Virginia is going to be 140. Um, Sydney to, to London, Sydney to Dublin is going to be about 300. I, ca I can't go any faster than that. I actually had a customer once ask, why don't you just drill, like, through the earth in order to... Yeah, it's kind of an engineering challenge. Also, we're back to the volcanic eruption issue if we try doing that. So we've got great backbone. We have the highest throughput that's really possible to achieve between all these regions. But I can't make the speed of light go any faster through a piece of glass. 
By the way, if you do the math, that number I gave you is only about two-thirds of C, because it's not light through a vacuum. It's light through glass. Right? We have to live with the physical limitations. So does that matter for your application? Am I in a world where adding 100 milliseconds or 200 milliseconds matters? I've had a lot of customers say that's critical, and then when we actually tried it, said, nah, nobody's going to notice with this application. So don't do this unless, you're, unless you've tested that the latency matters. The third reason that I'm seeing more and more is legal and regulatory requirements. German PII, personal information, by law, may only be stored in Germany. So you've got to set stuff up that that's all going to the Frankfurt region. Canadian government information, by law, may only be stored in Canada. So if you're dealing with stuff that touches on public information in Canada, it has to go to the Canada region. I expect we'll see more laws like this, because California is working on one. You know, GDPR in Europe, you have a lot more of this regulation coming. The other possible reason I didn't put on a slide is temporarily have active-active, because you're doing a blue-green transition. Right? I've got the old system, which is blue. I've got the new system that is green. And I can't afford downtime, so I want to, in less than a second, do that and make the green one now active. By the way, this is sometimes called red-black instead of blue-green, because the first architect at Netflix was colorblind. So he named it red-black instead. means the same thing. So those are the reasons that we'd want to do the kind of multi-region. Okay. You really got to think, can I be successful without the service? How much redundancy do I need? How do I access persistent storage? Because the number one challenge is avoiding data collisions. We'll talk more about this soon. But how do I avoid that problem in the persistent storage if I write the same data item in, say, Sydney and, and Virginia within 100 milliseconds, so when they go to replicate, they collide? That's a race condition. But we also have the issue of how do I keep everything in sync? How do I make sure that the application executables are exactly the same in both places? That the security credentials are exactly the same in both places so that all of these pieces will work? In other words, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gradations in there. So before we go down to these decisions, let's explore a little bit about different multi-region options and what you might do. So Amy, tell us about that, please. Thank you, Darren. So not black or white. We like to give you a lot of different options and help you understand how multi-region architecture is not equivalent to multi-region active-active. Multi-region architecture is essentially when you have your architecture across multiple um, regions. However, active-active is only when you have two full active stacks across the regions. Or, so how do you design for that? Let's talk about business continuity. The first reason, the reason most people often think about when they think about multi-region. So business continuity is all about the mission that your organization is trying to accomplish. How much data can you afford to lose? And how much downtime can your business sustain? Nobody really wants to lose any data, and nobody really wants to have their applications go down. But you probably don't have the amount of time and the money to architect and engineer to have 100% uptime and, and zero data loss. So let's talk about trade-offs. And just think about what can you do to help accomplish your mission 
and the mission could be for your application, for your users, for a particular organization, because let's face it, not everything has to be up all the time. So there are four strategies to business continuity. There's probably more, but we're gonna talk about these four, with the last one being active-active. And how we're gonna look at this is just somewhat how the temperature of your data and the temperature of the strategy you're gonna be dealing with. The first one is backup restore. And I think this is the easiest one to understand. This is when you wanna take your data somewhere and you save it. It used to be a hard drive, a floppy disk to a server. You put it into another data center, on-prem, something like that. In the cloud world, you put it into another region. So you can back it up using a managed database service and put it into S3 or Glacier. And you can use the cross-region replication function to make snapshots to transfer your data over to the other regions. And so your so basically, your data loss is equivalent to how often you've been taking your snapshots, and your downtime will probably be hours up to a day. Pilot light. So the pilot light is the gas furnace in your house. This is a light that is always lit. And then winter strikes. It gets really cold. And then you quickly run to that pilot light, and you turn it up, and then your whole house is warm. So in wait, the cloud. Wait. You're from Los Angeles. How would you know what winter is like? You know, every now and then, the temperature drops to 50 degrees, and I have to put on a sweater. OK. <laughs> so the pilot light is, in the cloud scenario, is basically you said, I have this critical core service that cannot go down absolute imperative that it's always up and running. So this is instantiated in another region, but not running. So that way, when something goes down, you can quickly reroute your traffic to the other region. And then over there, you can quickly bring those instantiated instances up, um, give it larger compute capacity if needed, and then use the data that you had that you had been using for your snapshots. And so your downtime now is probably in the order of minutes to hours, under an hour generally. And then your, your downtime again is going to be, sorry, your data loss is going to be how often you've been doing those snapshots. Warm standby. So the warm standby is a scaled down version of a fully functional environment that's always running in another region. You're extending the pilot light scenario because you've decided that these are my business critical applications, not just my critical core, but my business applications that I need to keep up and running. So you have your full stack over there. However, it's a little bit different. It's using less instances, smaller instances, and you've got some of them instantiated and running while others are just instantiated. You can run testing do some development in there, but probably not your production traffic. So that way, when things go down, you quickly reroute to the other one, and you quickly redeploy. And so your downtime and your data loss are both in the order of minutes instead. So the final pattern, I'm going to hand it back to Darren, because I know he loves to talk about patterns as well. I, I just like to talk. Oh, and there's that. It's his job. He's paid My to job. do it. 
So, so think about these. So, so that, that basic pattern with, with just doing the um, multi-region backup, that's simple, there's not a lot to fail, you still need to test it, but you, know, you can test that once or twice a year, you're good. Pilot light, I'm getting, and in that case, my data loss is probably in hours and my recovery time will be 24 hours or less. When I get to that pilot light, now my data loss is down to minutes, my recovery time is under an hour. When I get to warm standby, I can get my data loss down to sub-second, or if I use some multi-phase commit, down to zero. So if all I'm trying to do is avoid data loss, that's probably better than active-active. On the other hand, I'm still gonna have a failover time with the warm standby that could be in minutes. So if I truly need both zero data loss or close to zero data loss and zero downtime or sub-second downtime, now I gotta redesign to multi-region active-active. So three patterns we can do for this. An increasing order of complexity and difficulty. So this is the most common pattern that I see and it's the best one to use if you can. This is the idea of read local and write global, which is another way of saying I pick one region to do all of my writes to but I read from wherever is local. So they're both active-active, they both have all the data, they both have all the application, but I'm gonna always do my writing to a, to a single region. So in this case, we're using US West 2, Oregon, because you know Oregon rocks, so that's where I'm gonna start. And I'm also using uh, AP Southeast 1, also known as Singapore. So, okay, different sides of the world, different user bases, I've got my user who might be, and you know, I have all this stuff synchronized and constantly working with managed services. I've got a user in San Francisco, they hit Route 53, they do their read, it hits US West 2. I got a user in Taipei, they hit Route 53, it says, well, my closest place to read is Singapore. Great, but when I write, no matter which one's doing the writing, I'm gonna do my writing to San Francisco. Um, and I'm sorry, my writing to Oregon. And the reason for that is that way I don't have race conditions and I don't have collisions. Now, the downside of this, of course, is that I just added several hundred milliseconds of latency for that user in Taipei to do the round trip from Taipei all the way to Oregon and back. This is a great pattern when your read-write ratio is like 90, 95% read, when you're not writing that much. So I don't incur that latency very often. Very common pattern for this is registration systems. So this is what you're using for like user sign up and, to val and user authorization. When I've you know, got an app with say a few million users. And if you think about user authorization, you don't write very much, right? You write when you set up the user and you write when they change their password. But you read constantly. So this is a great pattern for that to make sure that, that I'm able to get the value of active active. So when would I write stuff directly into Singapore? Only if Oregon is offline. So I'll have all my tools to do the failover when that happens. But this is not good if I have to do a lot of writing in both places. So if I gotta do a lot of writing in both parts of the world, we'll do this pattern, which is a little more complex because now your application code needs to do some sharding. So I'm gonna, in the application, manage who's where. So in this case, I've got my Taipei user and they're going to both read and write. So the first time they write into this app, it's gonna say, you wrote to Singapore. You are now a Singapore user. So all your reading will always be whatever is most local, but your, that user will always write to Singapore. So if that user gets on a plane and flies to, um, you can tell Amy did this slide, so they fly to Los Angeles, 
and then they go to, to, to read, it'll read from Oregon, because that's more local. But because they're a Singapore user, when they write, it'll always write out to Singapore. This is usually, okay, this works well because, yeah, that user is going to have a lot of delay in writing when they happen to be in LA. But let's face it, not that many people from Asia will be in California at any one time. Not that many Americans will be in Asia at any one time. So it's a small subset that pay the latency. This is great when you have applications that are more like a 50% read-write ratio and are doing those. Usually, I see these uh, sorted geographically. I've seen some exceptions. One of our customers does fantasy sports leagues. They're, they have uh, servers in Mumbai and, uh, region and servers in the Virginia region. If you do a fantasy baseball league, it automatically sets it up in Virginia. And if you do a fantasy cricket league, it automatically sets it up in Mumbai. Because most of the people doing those kind of sports are doing it in those areas. And then again, I have the active-active failover. But you still have to have, so you have all the data in every region. You're using the application level to shard this to avoid collisions. And if it's starting to sound like I'm obsessed by collisions, yes, I'm obsessed by collisions. Because this causes pain, and this causes failure, and this causes bad user experiences. So this is the third pattern. This is the anti-pattern. This is the one that causes complexity and pain and you shouldn't use if you have any other choice, which is you read and write everything locally and hope you don't have a collision or somehow deal with that. Because what you're going to have here with the San Francisco users reading and writing to Oregon and the Taipei users reading and writing to Singapore is sooner or later you're going to have something like this. That you're going to somebody write something into the Singapore region at 937.01 and 10 milliseconds later somebody writes an item with the same primary key into Oregon. Well, the, it auto-synchronizes across the world, but that's going to take 300 milliseconds to, to get from Oregon to Singapore. So what happens when the synchronization hits? Uh-oh, something's already written there. So you just got a collision. Now, how do you deal with that collision? Your code's going to have to do it. Your code's going to have to decide, does newest win, does oldest win, does Oregon always win? Oh, I like that one. Oregon always wins. Does Singapore always win? Does Oregon always win on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and Singapore wins on other days? Do you roll back both transactions? But you got to do something, because what you now have is a set of applications in Oregon that says, I've written one thing, and a set of applications in Singapore that think they wrote something else. And this will cause inconsistency. If you're dealing with financial stuff, this is, opens the door to creating fraud and arbitrage. There's all sorts of things that are bad about this. So you don't do it if you can avoid it. So short version, I got three major patterns. Read local, write global. Do that if you can. Read local, write partition. Do that if you have to. Read local and write local. Do that if you have no other choice. So basically all the patterns there are. I've seen other patterns, but they're really variants of one of these three. And we can make it work. Now, let's talk about tools. The good news about all of this is even though it's difficult and it needs constant testing and constant management, AWS does have a lot of tools to make this easier. For example, S3, simple storage service. Whenever you put stuff in S3, it's already highly durable because it goes into at least three availability zones. It's 99.9999999 durable. It's 11 nines. If you do that math, that means if you write a million objects to S3, we will lose one object every 10,000 years. I think. Uh, ask me in 9,900 years, and I'll tell you how close we are. No. Uh, we have trillions of objects in S3. 
So we're, we're hitting these targets. And if you want to go cross-region, you just click on cross-region and say, OK, I want this object or this bucket to also be in one or two or 18 other regions. And I'll do it for you, as well as give you all the statistics about replication lag and what's happening and how it's going. So, and there's flexibility here. So I can do S3 to S3, or if I want to save some money, I can have S3 replicating to its cheaper cousin, S3 infrequent access. Or if I really want to save some money, I can replicate from S3 to Amazon Glacier, which is its even cheaper second cousin. So we have these various ways to get the data around the world. Now, sometimes you need the high-speed data as opposed to the high-durability data. That would be elastic block storage. EBS comes with snapshots. When the cool thing about EBS is it's smart enough that when you take a snapshot and then copy it to another region, Okay, that'll be a full copy. But the next time you copy that snapshot to another region, it's smart enough to go, ooh, I did this already. I just do an incremental now. So for example, your application uh, executables are probably sitting on some variant of EBS. So I use this kind of copy mechanism to make sure that I have the same executables on the same version in every region. And it makes it really easy to do that. And of course, all of these storage tools, like all of our storage tools are fully encrypted end-to-end -end unless you turn the encryption off. Don't do that. Tough parts of database. So a year ago, we introduced global tables to DynamoDB. This is a fully managed, multi-master, multi-region. When I create a DynamoDB table, I can create a standard table or global table. If I create a standard table, it's highly available because it's in three availability zones, but it's in one region. If I tell it I want a global table, that table now adds a whole bunch of metrics to support global replication. And then once I've made it global, I can then just pick how many regions do I want it in. And it will automatically do all the synchronization and, and be active-active, read-write full capabilities both sides, or all three sides, or all 19 sides, or how many of these you set up. Now, I still have that problem with collisions if I'm writing the same primary, if I'm writing the same key to multiple places. It has all of the metrics in it to tell you down to sub-millisecond which one wrote first. It also has tools to set up adjudicators, so what are the rules for what to do when those collisions happen. But if you're using a pattern that allows collisions, you're still going to have to write code to deal with the collisions. This will just give you the tools to make it possible. And the other thing I like about this is it's still DynamoDB. It works in any scale. One of the great things about DynamoDB is it's, it's cheap and really fast if you have kilobytes or gigabytes, but it's just as fast. It's still one single-digit milliseconds if you have petabytes in the table. I'm not exaggerating. We have multiple customers with more than a petabyte in a single table, to, but they're still getting uh, you know, two to four milliseconds per, uh, per transaction. So we can do those really well. Now, what if you need relational database? We have announced, but not yet delivered, multi-region master, multi-master for Amazon Aurora. But if I'm using either Amazon Relational Database Service or Aurora, then I can do what are called cross-region read replicas. So this is a variant of the warm standby pattern that Amy was showing you, that it's automatically replicating everything to the remote region. And I can do reads against the remote region, but not writes. In the case of a failover, I can promote that remote uh, read replica into a master in usually about three seconds, so pretty quickly. Now, of course, once I do that, it's not replicating anymore, because now it's not a replica. It's a 
master. So, but this does allow us to do this very quickly and have the ability to do those multi-region designs. Um, as we've said, we are working on multi-region, multi-master, which will make this look a little bit like what we saw with the Dynamo. So the ability to have multi-masters and have active-active, hot-hot, more than one place. Now, once you've done storage and data, you've solved the technical problem. You haven't made it operational. So to make it operational, you need security, you need networking, you need operations. Since I'm a database guy, I don't know anything about that. So Amy, tell us how that stuff works. Thank you. So I actually think there's a, quite a bit of a technical challenge when you're talking about security, networking, and management. Um, having spent a little bit of time over there, so let's talk about it. Designing beyond the data in your storage that you have in your multi-region architecture. So the virtual private cloud, VPCs, hopefully all of you are already familiar with this concept. This is basically how you do networking at AWS. This is your private area within the AWS cloud, and you can leverage multiple layers of security, including security groups, access, network access control, and other things there. So you're locking everything down into your VPCs within your region. How is this relevant to my multi-region architecture? Because I've just locked everything down. How can they communicate? Inter-region VPC peering. This was announced earlier this year. This allows you to connect your VPCs from one region to another region. So before then, and you can still do this as an option, you would have to actually connect your VPCs over the internet using an internet gateway on either sides of your regions. Then you would have to configure your VPN appliances in either VPCs, and then you would be transmitting your data over the internet. And there's probably a lot of reasons why you wouldn't actually want your data, your VPCs, to be exposed to the internet. So, inter-region VPC peering. We decided to simplify it for you. And we're simplifying it in a few ways because one, removed components. All you have to do is put your VPC peering up on either sides of your VPC, and then you're transmitting your data across our backbone. It's secure. The data is encrypted when it's going across our backbone. You've reduced the footprint of your environment because it's now on our backbone. So examples that you may want to use inter-region VPC peering is you have shared services. So authentication, monitoring, logging, the things that you need to do behind the scenes to keep your businesses working. So what you would do is you would create a common VPC to put your common services in there, and you'd share it out to your different orgs. And then your different orgs might have one organization per VPC, and then you can peer them all together. So in that scenario, we were talking about one VPC in one region. Most <coughs> of you probably have a lot of VPCs in a region. So can you connect them? Again, here's our diagram. I'm gonna shrink it down a little bit and throw some VPCs up there. We already know that you can already peer your VPCs together within a region. We know that our shared services are peered across our backbone between the regions. And then you have peering across on the other side between those VPCs. So basically you've created a hub and spoke network architecture. And this is another way that you can ensure that you've securely 
he share your resources across the different regions. And I know it's not on this slide, but I'm just going to do a quick call out. You can also connect your on-prem resources to the different regions in this topology as well. So Transit Gateway, which was announced earlier this week, is one of the ways you can also connect your on-prem environments into the different regions. So Route 53, so we're going to talk now about how you're getting your traffic between the different regions. So Route 53 is a scalable DNS service that we provide that allows you to manage it with APIs, how you want to do it. It's configurable. It offers a lot of great policies. And so you want to use this within your multi-region architecture because you want to understand how you're doing the failovers between the regions. You want to know if your applications in one region is healthy or has it gone down. And so Route 53 performs health checking on your different environments and allows you to use different routing policies. I'm going to cover only a few routing policies that Route 53 supports, and these are ones that are directly related to multi-region that we were talking about earlier. So latency-based routing. If you're trying to reduce the latency for your users, this is what you do. Geolocation. Geolocation is when you're talking about your data residency restrictions. When you're talking about, I need to keep my data within one area. When I need to keep my users only accessing resources within one area. DNS failover. Again, this is where we're incorporating your health checks. So that way, if your resources in one region go down, you quickly reroute them to the other region. And the great thing about Route 53 is that there are eight routing policies currently, and you can mix and match them and customize them as you need it. So you can do load balancing, you can have weighted routing, round robin, different ways. So the network load balancer. This is a layer four load balancing platform. It uses TCP protocol, and it can handle millions of requests per second, and has static IP support. So how are you going to use this in a multi-region architecture? It integrates with Route 53. So NLB supports connections between your different regions. You put it in front of your applications over there, and then it's going to load balance across the different regions. So in the past with NLB, what would happen is you would be load balancing across a single availability zone. We then made it so you can load balance across different availability zones for your resources, but still within one region. But now you can actually use it with inter-region VPC peering, so you can also say, I've got resources in another region, and I want to load balance it over there. So it supports connections to clients from IP-based targets peer to VPCs across in other areas, and it, does, it integrates with Route 53 for health checking. And so what this does is, in NLBs, you can create target groups. So now you can do health checking on those target groups and integrate it with Route 53 so that if your target group or your resources are going down, you can quickly reroute to the other region. AWS Global Accelerator. This was announced yesterday. This is a global service that optimally directs your internet traffic from your end users to your applications and running in single or multiple regions. It does a lot of things. 
So here's a few of them. Here are some of the benefits. It globally scales out internet-facing applications by fronting your regional applications, running on resources using NLB, AOB, your elastic IPs, using a single global IP. It's a static or immutable global IP for your clients. This is great. You don't have to have all these EIPs anymore. You can leverage the, our AWS network to improve the availability and performance of your traffic. You can, it's protocol agnostic. It supports both TCP and UDP at launch. And it helps you with single and multi-region traffic management. It does weighted load balancing. There's so many other great things to do about it. So tomorrow, Thursday at 1 o'clock, go to Net330 if you actually want to learn more about the Global Accelerator. The, pro the product manager will be there talking about it and giving you a deep dive. So to quickly summarize these areas, multi-region, multi-VPC connectivity across our backbone. It's secure. It's safe. And oh, by the way, if you want to do some more security, the was it the clock tower that was announced today? Control tower. The control tower, I'm sorry. The control tower that was announced today, it also integrates with the interregion VPC peering. So it's another way you can use to secure your environment. You have your Route 53 health checks and all the different routing configurations that you can do. NLB to load balance across zones and regions. It integrates with Route 53, and Global Accelerator provides your static global IP to improve your availability, performance, and traffic flow between your regions and for single regions. So that's how you do networking, some of it. Not comprehensive, but just to get you going. And so let's talk about how you actually manage it. So if you figured out how to store your data, you figured out how you want to architect your databases, You've got your traffic flowing between the different regions and the access to the regions. So you want to actually figure out how you deploy it for those of you back there. So for me, I used to spend tons of time trying to set up and configure servers, and it was a pain. So many ways to do it. Cloud formations allows you to templatize your environment. It is infrastructure as a code. You can say, this is exactly how I want my environment to be, how I want my users to have their security groups. This is how I want my regions to look like. You put it into a template. So you take us, and this template is called a stack set. So let's put a couple regions on there. This is multi-region, multi-account support. So let's throw more accounts on there. And basically, the stack sets are pushed down into the different target accounts to, to provision your resources. And then you have now your stacks over there. And oh, by the way, for those of you who actually want to go in and play with it, there's a link on there. It should send you to some templates that you can use to play with, um, read a little bit more about CloudFormation stack sets. So config rules. This is for compliance. And you're like, what about compliance? So your environment, you've provisioned it. You said, this is how I want my region to look like. This is how I want my accounts to look like. And this is who can access what. But let's face it, things change. We call that drift. So these are your changing resources. You set up AWS config, and you say, I want to normalize it. I don't want things to change. So what you've done is you've defined policies or config rules. You can do this, you can't do that, it should look like this. And then you can get notifications or alerts when things have gone outside of compliance. You can use APIs to access it and to configure it. 
and then you have histories or snapshots of what your environment looked like before and after throughout your history of the compliance. So it's multi-account, multi-region data aggregation of what your environment looks like. It's a centralized view of your enterprise. AWS Systems Manager, also multi-region, multi-accounts. With Systems Manager, you can simplify and orchestrate your workflows. So we have a feature in there called Automation. This is multi-region and multi-accounts ability to take actions on your environment. So for example, patching, rolling out all your patches on Patch Tuesday. You have all those security updates that you're getting blasted about, and you need to make sure that all of your environments, all your resources across all the regions are compliant. So this is how you do it. You can automatically do it from one centralized location. You can remediate your compliance drifts across all the regions using, for example, if you want to do your VPC um, configurations. You can back up your key resources. So when I say back up your key resources centrally, we're talking about cross-region replications of your snapshots. So you can automate your snapshots and make sure that you have it going at the frequency you want it to go at. And you can secure your setup through IAM permissions. AWS Systems Manager also has another feature called Inventory, which is also multi-region and multi-account. And so Inventory collects a variety of metadata on all your resources for all your accounts within all your regions. Once the inventory is collected, you can then view, filter, or query your inventory and have a centralized view of your entire enterprise. So what that looks like is you've got a couple of regions and you've got your VPCs. You set your systems manager inventory, and then we use the resource data sync to centralize all of that information into the inventory data stored in S3. From there, we run the glue crawler across the data, perform some ETL with Athena. So that way, you can have your inventory detailed view centralized across the different regions. And so when I say centralized, let's throw on there, I said it was multi-account. And here's what it looks like if account two happen to have multiple resources. And finally, monitoring and logging is important for your environment. You need to know what's going on. So you want to centralize all of this information. Logging and monitoring tends to be region specific. CloudWatch and CloudTrails automatically stores all their information to the region that they're in. So what you want to do is collect granular metrics from within each region, set up CloudWatch events using scheduled Lambda functions to push those custom metrics into a centralized location. So here's your region. Let's have some things that are accessing different things going on. You've got some events. So use CloudWatch, and it's monitoring, and it's going on. So you've scheduled a Lambda to go out and use Kinesis data hose to store all the information within S3. And then you want to do some logging analytics to figure out what is actually going on, right, using the tools of your choice. So it could be Elasticsearch. It could be Athena. It could be a variety of whatever logging analytics tools that we have out there or from our partners. And then obviously multi-region for that centralized view. So you want to make sure you always have it centralized so you can make the most informed decision for your region and across your regions to know what's going on. 
So here's a quick summary of how you can do all the management, cloud formations, how you set up your environment, provision it, config to have tracking on all your resources and you make sure you stay in compliance, systems manager to take all the actions and orchestration across your environment to manage, and CloudWatch for having a centralized logging solutions. Everything is cross accounts and multi-region. So finally, we kept saying something over and over and over today. What was it? Did they get the answer? Not really. I don't think I heard we'll, it. We'll, we'll see it. Look, one of those great pieces of advice <laughs> I got from my grandmother, yeah, don't do it. That's one thing. But one of those great pieces of advice I got from my grandmother is never tell lies because you have to remember what you said. And that's too much work. So I'm not really an honest person, but I'm lazy and it works out the same. So I told you before that if you stayed through this, you'd get cats and chickens. So the, what Amy was hinting at, what we keep saying over and over again, is if you don't test, you'll end up like this cat. Because we don't have time today to go into the great detail about the various things to do to do testing, but you've got to spend time thinking about if you're doing all this effort to build ActiveActive, Active, that means it's a critical application that can't go down. And if you don't test it when you need it, it won't work. You gotta test it, you gotta test it in different ways, you gotta test it creatively, you gotta think about all the different ways that things can go wrong. How do I test a network failure? How do I test a security failure? How do I test an application failure? How do I test bad data? How do I test a smoking hole on the ground? How do I do all of these things? There's lots of great tools out there like Simeon Army, Chaos Monkey, not familiar with that. Chaos Monkey kills a server, Chaos, uh, what is it? It's Chaos Gorilla kills a, a, a AZ and Chaos Kong kills a region doesn't really kill it, they just pretends. But it gives you the way to do these testings. You've got to do them. But instead of talking about testing in detail, I'd rather fulfill my promise and talk about chicken. So Christopher, please come join us. There's two reasons that I wanted to ask uh, Christopher to come talk to us today. So one is Chick-fil-A is awesome. But the other is, when we think active-active, people always think about, you know, like banks or medical or or you know, high-speed trading. Why does a chicken restaurant need high-speed active-active? Thank you, Darren. So I'm Christopher Lane. I'm an enterprise architect with Chick-fil-A, and I'm gonna be talking about our journey to a multi-region active-active architecture. Before I do that, I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about who Chick-fil-A is. Chick-fil-A is a privately-owned quick-service restaurant based in Atlanta, Georgia. Chick-fil-A began with an innovative concept from our founder, Truett Cathy, to fill the needs of his customers, the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. Chick-fil-A has grown from that simple concept to more than 2,200 restaurants across the U.S. and will be opening in Canada soon. However, no matter our size or scale, Chick-fil-A remains committed to our core values, offering amazing food, customer service, community involvement, and of course, our famous cows. These are the cornerstones that guide our digital experience, and the digital team wants to make sure our guests have a remarkable experience each time they dine with us. At the start of the year, we already had 10% of revenue flowing through digital channels and plans for a very busy 2018. In fact, we'll end this year with more than 15% of revenue flowing through digital channels. Let's talk a bit about what Chick-fil-A was up to the second half of the year to fully understand our architectural needs. 
On August 1, we launched a redesigned app and reimagined loyalty program. The app redesigned, streamlined our ordering flow and overall design, while our loyalty program <laughs> converted to a point-based system where users earned 10 points for every dollar spent and allowed users to unlock additional benefits as they advanced through our loyalty tiers. The Chick-fil-A One app reached number one in the App Store by the end of the day, which is the second time we've accomplished that feat in our history and something the digital team is extremely proud of. Following right on the heels of our app launch was our 2018 national giveaway. We gave an eight count of chicken nuggets to all existing Chick-fil-A One members, as well as anyone who downloaded the app. The giveaway lasted from August 30th to September 29th, and I've shown the days immediately around the start of the giveaway on the slide. As you can see on the graph, on August 29th, the day before the giveaway, we saw a peak of about 60,000 requests per minute across all of our API tiers right around lunchtime, which was a typical day for us pre-giveaway. However, on the day of the giveaway, on August 30th, we more than doubled our regularly uh, daily peak, hitting 120,000 requests per minute at dinner time. Now, the giveaway rolled out to existing customers throughout the day, uh, so, some, so many users redeemed their nuggets at dinner, which is why the peak was a bit later in the day on the 30th. Since the giveaway, we established a new peak of about 80,000 requests per minute at lunchtime, which, was more than which is more than 30% of the previous peak. While we obviously didn't have these exact numbers beforehand, we knew the combination of an app redesign and national giveaway would demand an architecture that, had, that could support very high throughput from a geographically dispersed user base. We want to ensure that our critical services were duplicated across regions for redundancy, scalability, and performance. And this meant moving to a multi-region, active-active, mostly active-active, and I'll talk about where we're not, architecture in the months leading up to the app launch and giveaway. So let's take a look at what we did. This is a high-level overview of our current service architecture. There's a lot to see here, and I'll build this up over the remainder of my talk, but I wanted to show the complete picture to highlight a few points. First, technically, we're currently active-passive due to remaining dependency on writing session tokens to an RDS masternode in US East. However, as we'll discuss, most of our architecture is active-active, and we should be fully active-active by the end of the year. Second, as mentioned, we want to replicate our critical business services, not all of them, but the critical ones, to US West for redundancy, scalability, and performance. So let's step through each major milestone on our journey. We started by running all Chick-fil-A services on Elastic Beanstalk, backed by DynamoDB tables in US East. Typically, services can read from multiple tables that write to only one, and this one writer per table rule has served us well, um, both as a, a general and thumb, but also as we moved to multi-region architectures. Once we had our services running in US East, we needed to stand up our identity stack. Uh, we use a commercial identity service and directory, uh, which we run and scale ourselves in our own AWS infrastructure. We now have our entire stack running in US East, at this point, we performed all uh, regression unit and load testing to make sure we fully understood and baseline the performance of our single region architecture. And this is a critical step. Don't take anything for granted here. Make sure you fully understand your single region performance before you take any steps to going multi-region. Our first step in going multi-region was replicating our service data to US West. So we migrated to global DynamoDB tables by enabling DynamoDB streams and creating identical tables in US West. 
This provided a fully managed, multi-region, multi-master database that provides sub-second replication for our services. The next, we stood up a read replica for our session tokens in US-West for durability, performance, and recovery. Now that we had all of our data in US-West, we could hook up the rest of our identity stack. We used VPC peering to allow the identity service and directory to effectively replicate across regions. VPC peering improved the performance while simplifying the architecture of our identity stack and really was enabling technology for our directory to be fully bi-directional and active-active. We're never more than a handful of records behind at any time in either region now. As mentioned before, the sessions tokens are still written to a master node in US East. Now that we have our identity stack running, we can complete our multi-region architecture by replicating our critical business services to US West. Right now, traffic flow between US East and US West is currently main manually set and maintained, but our future architecture will use a more intelligent automatic routing strategy. Speaking of the future, now that we have this multi-region set up, what does our future architecture look like? Well, it's similar, but with a few key differences. I've dimmed what will remain the same in the future architecture to highlight those differences. First, we'll use weighted routing based on the health of the ser service and the geography of the user. Uh, assuming services are healthy in both regions, then we'll use a sticky session to route users to a single region for the lifetime of the job. Next, we'll use Aurora's multi-master setup for writing session tokens in both regions. We've co actually completed this work in our non-production environments, and once multi-master Aurora is generally available beyond beta, we'll push this into production to be fully active-active. Finally, all CFA services, not just the business-critical ones, will be relocated to both regions using Amazon EKS instead of Elastic Beanstalk. EKS offers improved scalability and performance, and simplifies our DevOps process, which I won't go into detail today, but I'm happy to talk about offline. One other major benefit to switching to Amazon EKS is allow us to improve and simplify our routing tier. So I thought I'd talk, about, talk a little bit about that today as well. This is our high-level north-south routing into our EKS t uh, cluster. We're using a combination of the ALB ingress controller developed by AWS and Ticketmaster and Ambassador, which is an open source technology from DataWire. There's some overlap between these two projects, but we wanted the best of both worlds. In particular, we wanted all the benefits you get out of the box from ALB, including the AWS WAP and SSL termination, but we wanted to rely on Envoy for everything else, including service routing, authentication, scaling, canary deployments, rate limiting, easy publication of services, and transparent monitoring of L7 traffic to our services. We wanted it all. And Ambassador provided a simple, decentralized way of managing our Envoy files through annotations on our Kubernetes services, which allows us to declare the state of our routing tier uh, directly in code and tie into our DevOps process, which is really nice for us. We'll be publishing the details of our solution, the details of this solution on our Medium blog in the coming weeks, but essentially the ALB ingress controller routes all traffic to the Ambassador cluster IP service, and the Ambassador service manages the Envoy configuration to route to a specific request. In this case, the slash pro uh, profile, and then to the correct pods on running on the EKS nodes. Similarly, for across to other services, such as slash loyalty, we'll go through, AL, through the ALB to the ambassador service, which will then select the correct pods on the EKS nodes, which are uh, based on the declared state in the service manifest files. 
any changes to the service files, we use Envoy's hot start mechanism to deploy the new configuration. Ambassador relies on Kubernetes for high availability and scaling, so everything is managed in, in, natively in Kubernetes and handled directly by our DevOps system. We always like to finish with a quote from our founder, Truett Cathy, no goal is too high to climb, no, no goal is too high if you climb with care and confidence. This quote is particularly meaningful to the digital team. We actually named one of our conference rooms Climb with Care, but it also serves as a good guiding principle when building multi-region active-active architectures. Take an incremental approach to building these types of architectures with plenty of checkpoints, regression tests, and load tests layered into each milestone to ensure your architecture is functioning as you expected. In closing, finally, please check out our tech blogs at medium.com slash at Chick-fil-A tech blog, as well as our open source projects on github.com slash Chick-fil-A. And finally, we're hiring. It's my pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Christopher. That was great. Thank you. All right. So for those of you who have been dozing off, here's the, here's the things to remember. 10 points. Ready? One, this is complex. Think carefully about whether you need it. Don't do it if you don't need it. It's the last time I'll tell you not to do it. Two, consider whether you can use something less complex like multi-region backup or pilot light or warm standby. Three, if you're going to do active-active, avoid race conditions. Think about how I make them not happen. Use storage tools to keep data synchronized. So things like S3 cross-region and EBS snapshot. And as you may have heard this morning, new capabilities in EFS and other storage tools are also there. Number six, keep data consistent using managed services. It's too hard to do it in your own database. So use things like global tables or RDS or Aurora read replica. VPC peering gives you consistent security. Route 53 will give you the networking. It's automated. They'll have to monitor. Automated doesn't mean humans don't need to watch it. Point number eight, plan to manage the environment. Don't build it and go, oh, yeah, maybe I should manage this. So think about these things like stack sets and config rules and systems manager and centralized logging and, and so on at the beginning. Number nine, last time I'll say this, if you don't test, it won't work. Don't have your picture up there instead of my cat at the next presentation as a failure. Make sure that you will have tested it. And finally, point number 10, eat more chicken. All right. Please complete a survey. Thank you for your time. Oh, wait. I have one more. If you have any questions or comments, Amy, where are we going to be? So we are going to the Aria East Level 1 Willow Lounge. If you guys want to have any questions with us, we'll be there within the next 15 minutes, and we're going to be staying there for the next half hour. All right. Get out there and do cool things with multi-regions. Thank you all. <laughs>